basic question whether there is any kind of tension between those two disciplines. I think the short answer is no, but um, it gets more complicated as you look into it more carefully. And when, um, as I was making notes for this presentation, I asked myself, in what way has, does sociology stand in a tradition of modern scientific disciplines challenging the theologian? And it does in a way, in a way it doesn't. I mean, there have been a number of challenges from modern science to Christian theology, I guess beginning with the Copernican Revolution. I don't think it challenged anything in Christian faith directly, uh, such as I suppose in the book of Joshua when it says the sun stood still, well, the sun doesn't move, so did the earth stand still? But I don't think anyone was terribly troubled by this. I think it was something more subtle. It was suddenly the earth was not the center of the world. Uh, the sun became the center, and the idea that God should be interested what people do on this rather absurd little planet seemed less credible. And if anything, that's not a direct challenge, but it's a, it's a feeling. And certainly more so since then, because when you look at the expansion of our view of the universe since Copernicus, uh, that the God who created the galaxies should be interested in us, seemed of hard to take. Uh, but that's a not, I think, has not been a direct challenge. I would say in terms of modern history of ideas, probably the most direct challenge came from biology uh, with uh, Darwin and the theory of evolution. That was experienced at the time as a great shock and uh, continues to be, at least for segments of the Christian community. Uh, I think the most serious shock came from modern historical scholarship issue which many of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with, and uh, the application, particularly the application of modern historical methods to uh, the biblical literature, uh, came as a big shock to a lot of people, and um, uh, still does in many ways today. And then psychology, uh, modern psychology, especially sort of um, psychoanalytically oriented psychology, was a shock because it seemed, whether rightly or wrongly, I think mostly wrongly, but it seemed to sort of reduce everything uh, in the realm of the spirit to rather unappetizing, unconscious drives and instincts. Uh, so is religion really just an unresolved Oedipus questions of that sort? Um, <clears throat> well, does sociology present that kind of challenge? I would say no, it doesn't. Um, uh, but as I said, things become more complicated as you continue to think about this. Certainly, if, I mean, sociology is an empirical science. Uh, it cannot deal with issues of theology directly. Uh, God, heaven, the process of redemption is not amenable to scientific investigation. Uh, it is an object of faith, not of scientific experiment. Uh, but um, uh, if a person has ideas about a religious institution which can be empirically falsified, then you have a problem. I think this could be a problem for some Roman Catholics. I have doubt that they would have problems for Baptists or for that matter for any kind of Protestant. 
One thing I remember from my own experience, one of my earliest research projects, I was still a graduate student, and I uh, was a research assistant on a project on uh, religion in post-war Germany, post-World War II Germany. And uh, the person in charge of the Catholic part of the research was a recent convert to Catholicism, a German woman, a historian. And uh, the director of the project explained to her what we're interested in is how, does, how do the various churches, particularly Catholic and Protestant, relate to German politics. And she said, oh, they don't relate at all. The church is not involved in politics, which at the point when the Christian Democratic Party, which was heavily Catholic, was the most important party in Germany, was a counter-empirical statement. And she wouldn't budge from it and did totally useful work, useless work. Instead of doing a study, she produced some kind of catechism as to what the church should be, rather what it was. Well, as I said, there may be some traditional Catholics who may have a problem with sociology on this. I don't think uh, Protestants would. And um, the discovery that the church, whatever else it may be, is a human institution with uh, feeble and sometimes evil people uh, involved in leadership positions uh, is something that theologically, I think, can be well uh, worked through. Uh, I think it was Gilbert Chesterton, British Catholic writer, who said somewhere that original sin is the only Christian doctrine for which faith is not required. You just have to look around, <coughs> which is probably true. Uh, there is a more subtle problem, which I think I should mention, and that which directly affects what I have been doing for many years. And that comes from the sociology of knowledge. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with that term. It's a relatively minor subdiscipline of sociology, which deals basically with the social roots of knowledge. Uh, why do certain ideas flourish in some situations and not in others? And how does that affect uh, how people, uh, uh, what people think is true? Um, the gist of the sociology of knowledge, it's a relatively recent discipline. The term was coined by a German philosopher by the name of Max Scheler in the 1920s. And, um, uh, but in the gist, really, of what the sociology of knowledge is all about uh, was expressed in a sentence by Pascal in the what, 17th century, where he wrote that um, what is truth on one side of the Pyrenees is error on the other. What people in France regard as true, in regard as false, and vice versa. Why is that? And uh, although people on both sides of this boundary are convinced that they have the truth, yet Pascal correctly suggested that what they think is truth has a lot to and what people around them think is truth. Well, the sociology of knowledge, in a way, is a gigantic um, commentary on that Italian statement. And uh, in my own work with others in this area, uh, I coined the term, which I'm very fond of, plausibility structure. Uh, when I'm dead and somebody opens my heart, on it will be written plausibility structure. It's a concept of which I'm extremely fond, not because I invented it, but because it's very useful. 
what's a plausibility structure? Plausibility structure is the social context in which what you believe about the world is plausible to you. And we can show in detail how plausibility is created and maintained. And um, uh, if you were an evil-minded person, you could... Uh, actually, I think I could make a lot of money selling that to various ideological groups. You can show how to convert people from one plausibility to another. There's a recipe for that. It's Chinese communists coined the phrase brainwashing for this. And if you have the right power over an individual and the, right, the ability to manipulate that individual's social environment, uh, you can convince people of almost anything. Um, I recently wrote, I write a blog, by the way, so as not to be bored in my old age. And uh, I recently wrote a blog about the controversy. Some of you may have come across this. There's a whole group of psychotherapists, I think most of them, if not all of them, uh, evangelical Christians, and maybe some Catholics, uh, who try to convert homosexuals to become heterosexuals. And there's been a debate about the scientific validity of these procedures, which I'm sure are very doubtful. But what I wrote was, why not? Uh, I'm sure if you take somebody with a certain sexual proclivity and put him or her into a situation where this is systematically dismantled, he or she will convert to something else and vice versa. So I see no reason to assume that homosexuals can't be made into heterosexuals or the other way around, depending on the plausibility structure of this particular exercise. Now, uh, what this does, of course, if, if you're a theologian, or for that matter, any kind of religious believer, is that religious certainty becomes uh, harder to get because absolute truth claims are shown to be dependent on particular social circumstances. And that is, frankly, a little disturbing. Uh, although I don't think it is a direct challenge to a Christian view of human beings. Uh, after all, we are, we are created as social beings. We are dependent on others to uh, sustain us in our view of reality. And what the sociology of knowledge does, it spells this out in very great detail. When I was thinking of what to say, I could obviously expand on the sociology of knowledge from now until uh, next summer. I keep you in this room and not repeat myself, I think, since I've done this now for something like 200 years. Um, but that is not part of the program. So I will not do that, but I thought that since I'm speaking in a theological context, uh, I should um, say something theological. And I'm not a theologian by training, but I have strong theological interests. And I'm also what I have a number of times described, I'm incurably Lutheran. Uh, and uh, that's not just my background, but I find it time and again that certain Lutheran categories keep, um, keep being plausible to me. Uh, and uh, well able to handle um, uh, various issues. And this is one of them. Uh, why? Uh, there are people who have strong Christian convictions 
who think that no realm of human life should be totally free of religious definitions. I think Calvinists are most inclined to this, uh, the notion of God, Christ being sovereign over every sphere of life. And that's very contrary to what Luther thought and what has been the basic uh, Lutheran view of the world, which is a very sharp distinction. I won't go into this. Some of you can do this better than I can. I know you can. Uh, between law and gospel. Uh, the gospel deals with redemption, and that is what is the business of the church. Uh, the rest is law, which means these are not divine mandates. These are not revealed truths. These are which reason and good sense and moral judgment deal with. In other words, they are prudential rather than absolute. Uh, and this has a lot of political implications, uh, uh, very relevant, by the way, to the current debate over same-sex marriage. I won't go into this. One of the very important uh, insights of the Reformation, I think, was marriage is not a sacrament. It's a very important statement. And in the early days of the German Reformation, uh, uh, clergy did not perform marriages. The marriage was established by men and a woman setting up a household. And then afterwards, they came and asked for a blessing of what had already happened by their actions. And to make that very clear, the blessing, which the minister did, uh, didn't occur in the church. It happened outside the church in front of its doors that were closed. This is not a sacrament. This is a reasonable, morally desirable human institution. Um, how did I get on that? Oh, the two realms, law and gospel. Uh, uh, very significant, I think. But there's something more profound. Um, a person I knew very well years ago and was one of the, I think, best American scholars of, the, of Lutheranism uh, was George Forel who taught for many years at the University of Iowa. And uh, I once, uh, we once had a conversation, what is the basic idea of Lutheranism? And he said it's the, the formula uh, uh, finitum capax infiniti. The finite is capable of the infinite. The infinite can manifest itself within the finite, which I think, at least he thought, uh, Calvin rejected that idea. Um, what, why is that important? And I find um, um, there's a formula that came out of the early the debates of the Reformation. I'm sorry I'm infringing on your territory here. I'm sure in a very amateur way. But let me try anyway. Um, the early Reformation, Luther was still alive and uh, had to fight on two fronts on the matter of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. On the one hand, there was the Roman Catholic Church, which had a very, I think they've a little modified this since then, robust notion of transubstantiation. Uh, the Eucharist was a miracle. The priest had the power to transform the bread and wine, to transubstantiate them into the body and blood of Christ. It even had a little altar boy with a bell who rang the bell so that the congregation would know when the miracle occurred. Well, Luther rejected that. But on the other hand, there were the early Swiss reformers. I guess the main character at that time was Zwingli. This was before Calvin, who basically uh, took the inscription on this table literally. 
do this in remembrance of me. In other words, the Eucharist is a memorial service to remember Jesus. Uh, nothing miraculous, nothing supernatural is occurring. And uh, the Lutherans tried to establish an in-between position. That no, there's no miracle, it's not a miracle, certainly not performed by the minister, uh, uh, who's not a priest. Uh, um, but it's more than a memorial service, because Christ is really present. And the formula that finally was formulated that way after the Augsburg Confession in the so-called Formula of Concord, I forget the date of that, uh, and the formula was, it's a very nice phrase, I think, that Christ is present in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine. In, with, and under. It's still bread and wine. You could, well, they didn't have chemical analysis at the time, but you could have a chemist subjecting it to all kinds of scientific tests. It'll be bread, it'll be wine. There'll be no sign of Christ's presence. But in, with, and under these mundane elements, Christ is present. The infinite manifests itself within the finite. I think that this is an extremely useful formula. I find it very useful if we think of scripture, but that's not my topic this morning. I think the Bible, scripture is a human document, uh, like bread and wine, but in, with, and under that human document, uh, a revelation of God is present. Uh, but that's not my topic this morning. My topic is sociology. And the same formula applies to institutions. Do not expect a religious institution to be a miracle. <laughs> God knows it isn't. And uh, whatever you look at, Chesterton's statement certainly applies. Look around you and uh, you find the weak, unappetizing, sinful human beings all the way up to the papacy. Not the present pope, who seems like a nice man, but there were some pretty awful who occupied that chair. Like Alexander Borgia, who uh, uh, murdered half the College of Cardinals, or tried to, uh, <coughs> um, in, with, and under. Uh, the institution can be subjected to any kind of depressing political, economic, sociological analysis and yet, in, with, and under those frail human institutions, something comes through which comes from God. Um, um, uh, I, I want to come to something else, but I'm tempted to tell you a story. Uh, the, um, uh, uh, the great rabbi Hillel, I think it was second century B.C., was asked once, can you tell the meaning of Torah when you stand on one foot? And he said, yes, you can. Uh, and then he formulated what apparently was the first uh, statement of the, the golden rule, which Jesus repeated. Jesus, I think, was quoting Hillel, except there are no footnotes in the New Testament. Um, and the Hillel had a kind of negative formulation. He said that was his formulation of the golden rule. Do not do unto others what you hate being done to you. That you can say, well, you stand on one foot. This, that is the meaning of, of God's revelation in the, in, the, in the Torah. And then he added a wonderful sentence. The rest is commentary. Okay? Now, uh, for centuries, rabbis were arguing, 
just what that means, who's your, who's, what does it mean that somebody is doing something, who is the somebody, what centuries of commentary. But that's what it's all about. Uh, I think you can also do this with Christianity. Uh, you can say what it's all about while you stand on one foot, particularly relevant to mention this week, it occurs to me. Uh, there's a wonderful story from the time of the Soviet Union where the communist government uh, periodically had campaigns to advocate atheism. And they sent out these political commissars and people had to assemble and listen to lectures on scientific atheism. And the story is, I can't vouch for the truth, but it's a beautiful story. It may well have happened that in some village in Russia, all the villagers had to assemble and listen to a one-and-a-half-hour lecture on scientific atheism by a commissar from the party. And the commissar, when he was finished, said, well, we, have, we allow free speech here. Uh, the priest is welcome to, uh, to have uh, uh, five minutes to respond. So the Orthodox priest went to the front and said to the commissar, I don't need five minutes. And he turned to the assembled villages and said, Christ is risen. And they responded, he's risen indeed. Then the priest went back. That was it. Now, obviously, there's a lot of commentary, okay? Who is Christ? Why is his resurrection important? What does it mean? What does it mean for the human race? That's commentary. But that is the basic message. And where that message is still alive, uh, the faith is alive. People quarrel over the commentary, yes. But that's what it's all about. When that is no longer there, I think the message has gone. Uh, this was a little bit of a side expedition. Let me get back to the main theme. Uh, sociology as a discipline and uh, theology, specifically what we're interested in this room, is Christian theology. Is there a Christian sociology? I think the clear answer is no. Uh, there's no more a Christian sociology than a Christian chemistry or a Christian dental medicine. Uh, and if you uh, go to a dentist and want your toothache fixed, you don't care whether this person is a Christian or a Muslim or an atheist. Can he fix your tooth? Uh, and I think one thing which uh, Protestantism did, uh, particularly the Lutheran version of Protestantism, is to open up a sphere of life where a secular discourse prevails and you allow it to prevail. And science obviously opened up important segment of the discourse. Hugo Grotius, Dutch legal scholar in the, what, 17th century, I think. I think it was 17th century. Uh, who was a very pious Protestant, by the way. He was no, by no means an atheist. And he thought, one of the founders of modern international law, and he felt that uh, international law should be free of theology. It should be a rational discipline. And uh, he coined the phrase it should be done etsi deus non daretur, translate, as if God did not exist. He didn't say God did not exist, but as an international lawyer, he was arguing within a discourse which did not refer to God. He was not a Lutheran, by the way, so he was an Arminian, but anyway. Um, okay, there is no Christian sociology. But, and um, my own approach to sociology, very was shaped when I was a graduate student 
is very much indebted to Max Weber, classical German sociologist, uh, who uh, coined a phrase often misunderstood that sociology, all of social science, must be value-free. That is, when you do sociology or any other social science, economics, political science, uh, you must bracket your own values and simply try to understand what is in front of you. Not your values don't matter for that exercise. You want to find out what goes on in the world. Now, uh, if you are a Christian, what does that mean? Or if you're a theologian, what does that mean? Value-free does not mean that you have no values. It simply means that your own values must be put on the shelf while you do this particular exercise. Um, a rough analogy would be if you are a doctor and you're operating on somebody, you have to bracket the idea whether it's someone you like or dislike. Um, uh, you're supposed to treat this person uh, re regardless of whether you value him or her or not. Um, it also doesn't mean that values are unimportant. In fact, Weber spent much of his work, his main work was on religion, to analyze, although he himself was not religious, or at least not very much religious, um, uh, not orthodox in any sense. Uh, he, um, uh, he was interested in questions like uh, uh, what was the influence of Protestantism on the development of uh, what he called the capitalist spirit, the, the mindset that makes modern capitalism possible. And that's a historical question, an empirical question, whether you think it was a good thing or a bad thing. So I would say within the discipline itself, whether you are a Christian or not is irrelevant or should be irrelevant. The question becomes relevant when you apply what you find. And I'll tell you the episode where this became clearest to me, dramatically clear. Um, out of the blue, I was asked to become chairman of an international working group on the future of South Africa beyond apartheid. It happened quite suddenly. I, I was living in New York. No, I was living in Boston already. I got a telephone call from a guy I didn't know at the time. Uh, from South Africa, who said that Harry Oppenheimer was a big mining tycoon at the time and a very passionate opponent of apartheid, said he wants to set up a working group to discuss the future of South Africa after apartheid collapses, which was already on the horizon at the time. And he's, this guy was coming to America. He wants to meet with, you, with me and ask me whether I would chair that working group. And I said on the phone, why me? I've never been to South Africa. I know nothing about South Africa. He said, that's why we want you as chairman. Uh, and I said to him, I understand what you're saying and why you're saying it, but it's the first time in my career that uh, I'm being offered a position on the grounds of proven ignorance. Well, I, I accepted the invitation and spent three very interesting years. I wasn't there all the time. I usually went to South Africa twice or three times a year over a uh, two, three-year period. Uh, and we put together a working group, and uh, what we analyzed was the spectrum of opinions within South Africa, from the Africana right-wing to the resistance movement in the black townships, as to what they thought 
the future should be and what they thought it would be. It's a very interesting work. It came out in 1988. It was hardly noticed in America except by some um, specialists in Africa. But uh, it was a bestseller in South Africa for one year, and then it was obsolete because uh, events overtook it. But during that one year, it was very useful. And we had, I'm coming to my point, uh, we had a working group of about 22 people. I think it was 22, most of them South Africans. We had a couple of people from the U.S. and Europe. And my job was to get them on the same wavelength because otherwise the project will fall apart. And they dealt with different segments of political spectrum. And um, I had to, we spent a long weekend in a hunting lodge in the eastern Transvaal kind of thing that makes me very nervous. I'm a city boy. I can't sleep at night unless there's traffic noises in the background. Um, problem I have in Waco, it's too quiet at night. Um, anyway, we were in this, this hunting lodge in the middle of nowhere. And I had three days to get these people into a common uh, grid of concepts. And one of the things I emphasized was value freeness. And I said more or less what I said just now. We all have values, very strong, in fact, passionate values. Uh, most of us have, well, all of us had about apartheid. Uh, but um, when you interview people, you don't want to tell them about your values. And we are not interested in your values in this project. We want to know what their values are. Uh, discipline yourself to be able to do that. And we had one person there who then was a very bright young journalist um, who has in the meantime become a very important person. Uh, her name is Helen Zille, and she's now the leader of the main opposition party in the South African parliament. And she was for a while, uh, I think she still is, uh, prime minister of the province of the Western Cape, where Cape Town is located. And well, Zille uh, was a young journalist who had a very passionate opponent of apartheid, um, and at the time, she was a Marxist. She's no longer a Marxist. Uh, and she protested at our meeting, said, we cannot do this. We cannot be value-free. We are part of the struggle, and everything we do has to express our side in that struggle. So we discussed this for about 20 minutes, and then I gave up and said, okay, I won't argue with you. Do what you can do. She produced one of the best papers in the project. Uh, she, her area was the Africana right wing. The people had a wonderful term for them. They were called the bitter enders, who were going to be defending apartheid until the bitter end, which it turned out they didn't. Most of them collapsed and joined the African National Congress. But um, uh, at the time, it looked like they would fight with guns until the very end. Um, so um, uh, um, she... Um, uh, gave a wonderful pic. Oh, she, of course, she spoke Afrikaans. She's an Afrikaner. And they talked to her. They knew who she was, but they would talk to her. And she produced an absolutely accurate, precise picture of the worldview of these people, with which she violently disagreed. And so the last three or four pages of her paper, she talked about the struggle and why apartheid was evil. And, of course, we just edited this out. Why is this interesting? She did brilliantly what she said could not be done. Okay? She had bracketed her political values for the exercise 
uh, of understanding these people, which was politically very important to understand these people. Uh, they seem to be a very powerful um, uh, uh, factor in the situation, which surprisingly, we were very surprised, they turned out to, not to be. Um, well, I mentioned a, a Lutheran concept at the beginning, uh, the very sharp division between law and gospel. Fuse other realms of human reality with the reality of redemption, which is what the gospel is about. Uh, and um, uh, I would say social science, science in general, modern empirical science, is not something under the aegis of the gospel. It does not proclaim the gospel. It is not supposed to proclaim the gospel. It is supposed to help us understand the world. Um, and I find that a very useful way to look at it. Now, the last thing in the world I want to do is to convert Baptists to Lutheranism. In fact, I don't want to convert anybody to anything uh, except on moral grounds, but that's a different issue. We certainly were interested in converting people from believing in apartheid to opposing it, but not in our little project. Um, but um, um, uh, as one asks the kind of question I've been discussing here, that separation between a secular discourse and a theological one is, I think, very important. Um, I think I'll stop here.